Old Testament reading and sermon passage is found in Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The New Testament reading for this morning is found in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good to see you. For those of you who are watching online, a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you are watching. My name's Jamie, one of the pastors here, and we're in a summer series in the Psalms. It's always good to read through the Psalms and to preach through the Psalms and to know the Psalms because the Psalms are the most quoted uh, scripture, uh, particularly in the New Testament, and the Psalms teach us who God is. But also the Psalms have been called the songbook of the soul. And the Psalms, they show us how to worship. They show us how to pray in a way that is authentic and real. As we read the Psalms, as we encounter God, we find that we don't have to be fake. We don't have to hide. We can be real with God. So here in Psalm 5, the psalmist is yearning for God's presence. And this is very important because often, uh, we fear that we cannot get near to God. We say something like, you know, my sin, it somehow disqualifies me from being close to God, and so I have to do more. I have to work hard to get close. And Psalm 5 is going to show us that there's a different and better way. For Psalm 5 is going to show us how Jesus provides the way to God, and that's really our proposition, our big idea is Jesus provides the way to God, and because he does that, we can enter into God's presence confidently. 
Today we'll have three points. We're going to look at the importance of God's presence, how to enter God's presence, and then lastly, enjoying God's presence. Before we go further, would you please pray with me? Jesus, we come before you because you are the God who was worthy and you are the God whom we praise. We want to be near to you. Today, show us how. Show us how that you are the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through you. Give us confidence to enter into the presence of God through you, the living way. So Jesus, by your spirit, make my words to be your words. Open the ears and the hearts of those who now listen. We pray in your matchless and mighty name, amen. So first, let's look at the importance of God's presence. So last week we looked at Psalm 4, and like Psalm 4, Psalm 5, today's psalm, uh, part of it is a lament. Look at verse 1. Listen to my groaning. So here the psalmist David is lamenting. But also like Psalm 4, Psalm 5 is a psalm of confidence. Drop to the very end. Look at verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Verse 12. You cover the righteous with favor. Now, the thing today, though, is we need to see that the main topic, what the psalm is centrally, are centrally about, is the presence of God. And we see this in the structure of the psalm. So the psalm has what we call five strophes, or five stanzas. And uh, stanzas one, three, and five are all directed at God. And then stanzas two and four are actually, if you will, not directed, but really aware of or paying attention to evil men. And what's going on is there's this back and forth conversation. So one, three, and five say, God, I look to you. You are my strength. You are my refuge. You are my joy. But then in stanzas two and four, but there are those who are evil. There are those who slander. There are those who are bloodthirsty, and they even want my own blood. Now, structurally, that center stanza, number three, which is verses seven through eight, that is the highlight. And so let's look at what it says, verse seven. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So we need to hear what David is saying. He says, look, there's evil men all around me. They are bloodthirsty. They are against me, and they are against God. And yet, what they are doing is not what David fears most. <laughs> David says, God, what I need most is not protection from them, but I need your presence. What David is saying is what I need above all things is to be near to you, O Lord my God. Now, I just want us to pause. <laughs> is this where you go when you are in danger? Is this where you go when you are threatened? A few weeks ago, I shared the anecdote about when I was uh, very young, I was a freshman in high school, and I wrongly and rudely uh, made fun of a drunk, drunken snowmobiler in the winter in Wisconsin. And so here's this guy, he's stuck in the ditch, and I go by him and I laugh, 
and I continue on the trail and I'm going across the lake and it's a frozen lake, of course, it's winter and I'm just riding and all of a sudden I am knocked off my machine and lo and behold, as I stumble and kind of come to my senses, there's a really big drunken snowmobiler standing over me about to kill me. At least so I thought. <laughs> and when that type of fear happens, what do you do? It's, it's fight or flight. And for me, the choice was so obvious. This guy's big and I wanted to run. And I wanted to run away. And Psalm 5 comes and says, well, well where do you want to run? And Psalm 5 says, well, if you're going to flee, to whom do you seek refuge? You run to God because God is the place where you need to be. God is your desire. God is your presence at all times. See, the Bible teaches that the presence of God is our foremost need. The presence of God is what we are to desire more than anything. What we want more than anything in this world is to be close to God. Now, um, if you were here back in the fall of 2021, we were in a sermon series and it was an overview of how a holy God can dwell with sinful people. And what we did is we traced the development of how God's promise to always be with his people was made manifest. And so we started that series looking at Genesis chapter two. And there in Genesis chapter two, we saw how God made us and he made us in his image to be with him to exist with him, to dwell with him, to always be in his presence. This is part of our creation design. This is part of our calling, our purpose. But then we saw in Genesis chapter three, we said no to God. We said no to his design. This is what we call the fall, sin. Sin came in and corruption came into us and now the curse and the fundamental part of that curse is we say, God, we no longer want you. But God did not leave us to ourselves and to our brokenness. He promised restoration. And in that sermon series, we talked about the sacrifices and how those sacrifices, they bring payment for sin. We looked at the commandments of God and how those commandments, they show how sinful we are and how much we need a redeemer. But then one of the highlights of that series is we looked at the temple and how the temple culminates the presence of God. And when Solomon the king was praying, the holiness of God descends into the very temple and fills it and all the people tremble and cry out. And God says, I am your God and you are my people. But also in that series, we remember the presence of God departed from the temple. For the people said, God, we no longer want you. The people rejected their God. They no longer wanted the presence of God. What they were designed for, what they were made for, what they are to enjoy all their lives, they said no. And so God's holy presence departed from the temple. And we were left asking, well, how do we then get the presence of God back? Well, circling back around, Psalm 5 answers that. And that's our second point, how to enter the presence of God. Look at the first stanza, verses one through three. There we see a plea for God to hear the prayer. Give ear to my words, O God. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice and I watch. Basically, he's saying, 
God, I'm going to see what you do in my current circumstance. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is the second stanza. Here, David lays out God's holiness, but then also he lays out our evilness. Look at verse 4. God, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. Now, we need to connect this to our first point. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, the purpose of humanity is what? To dwell with God forever, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we are here. And yet those who are evil may not do so. Why? Because God is holy. So we need to take a step back, if you will, make a definition. What is holy? So holy in the Old Testament, the word is kadesh, and simply it means to be set apart from that which is common. And so one way to think about holiness, it's God being set apart as God, other, divine, from that which is common or earthly. Now, in used with God and who he is, it talks about his moral excellence. So when we say God is holy, that means all that he does is right. Also, another sense of God's holiness is, if you will, his absolute beauty. Um, There is no fault in God. There is no blemish in God. He is holy. But also, when we say God is holy, we speak of his perfection, that he is set apart and perfect in all that he is and all that he does. And so when we say, God, you are perfect in power, we're saying you are omnipotent. God, when you are perfect in knowing, you are omniscient. God, when you are perfect in morality, you are pure. God, when you are perfect in beauty, you are radiant. Now this perfection means then that nothing impure can stand before him. The totality, the absolute nature of God's perfection means that there is no allowance for imperfection. And so where this becomes very acute is this, God's justice is perfect. And he must punish all sin, every disobedience, even the smallest infraction because he is holy. And so perfect justice means perfect punishment. And that's why in chapter, our Psalm 5, verse 4, our Psalm today, that's why it says God cannot delight in wickedness. It's impossible to his character. This is why it says in verse 4, evil cannot dwell with God because it is impossible for it to exist with him. So how does this relate to us today? It relates to us today because we are evil. Now, I have to say, as soon as I say we are evil, that raises eyebrows, and people are going to have various responses to that statement. One statement by, or one response might be this, it's disbelief. Yeah, I can see that perhaps I'm sinful, I have some things that are wrong with me, but to be called evil, (laughs) No, that's not really it. Evil are those who are really bad people. They're like the villains in those superhero movies. Or in real life, it's like, you know, the serial killers. Those are evil people. So that's one response. Another response might be one of morality. A person might say, yes, I'm evil, but I'm getting better. Um, I'm trying really hard not to be evil. I'm cleaning myself up. And so I'm not that bad. 
I think the most common, though, in the church is this. I call it faithless religion. This person says this, well, of course I'm evil. Because the Bible teaches that we're all born in evil. We're all evil. The Bible says we're not able to please God with our good works because our good works are counted as filthy rags. I sin daily in thought, word, and deed. I even sin in the things I fail to do. There is so much good that I ought to do, and yet I do not do it. I know that I'm evil. In fact, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I am an object of God's wrath. There are many people who say that, but listen, they do not tremble. They know this truth, but it does not cause them to fear. Why is that? Because secretly in their heart, they're saying, I'm really not as bad as other people. Sin is really not that bad. It's just something that is. But sometimes we might even say, God's really not holy. See, that is faithlessness. It's failing to see who we truly are, and it's failing to see who God really is. Who is God? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. If you've been watching the news, um, apart from all what's going on with our Supreme Court and politics in science, I enjoy reading science. There's two sunspots right now, and they're getting really big. And they're aimed at the earth. And people are saying, is it going to eject like a corona and come out and zap all our electronics? There's a sense of the closer you get to our sun, the more dangerous and deadly it is to us. Friends, that is God's holiness. The closer you get to God's holiness, the more dangerous and deadly it is. This explains why Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 6 of his prophecy, woe unto me, as he gets close, he has this vision of God and his holiness, and he says, woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips in the presence of a holy God. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6, when, when well-meaning Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark of God as it's being towed on a cart, and he touches the ark of God, and he is struck dead. For what is unholy, man cannot touch the holy ark. This is even in Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. There you remember, Jesus goes up on a high mountain with his disciples and his holiness is revealed to them. And the presence of God is manifest and God's voice speaks and it says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And the people fall in terror because of the holiness of God. See, when we say we are evil, I recognize that that is a big charge. And so a person might say, if you're going to call me evil, where's the evidence that I am evil? Psalm 5 says, the words are your witness. You ever speak a lie? Ever? Verse 6, the Lord abhors this evil. You ever boast? You ever say you're better than what you really are? The Lord abhors that evil. Do you ever flatter someone, you know? Say a kind word, but you don't really mean it. It's more about you than it is about that person. You're saying nice things so that they think nice things about you. You're not trying to build them up. You're trying to make yourself look good. Verse 9, 
That's evil. What's the heart behind it? You're valuing the world's favor more than God's favor. You are self-absorbed. So we would not define evil yet, but let's define it now. Often when we think of the word evil, we think of the word sinister. We think of like, you know, a superhero or something like that. Evil in the scriptures is a heart for self and not a heart for God and others. Evil is being self-absorbed. Evil is, it's always about you. Evil is godlessness. In verse 9, we see this very ugly descriptor. Your mouth is an open grave. The grave in Jewish um, law, Jewish ceremony, is unclean. And so what David is saying is, your mouth is an open grave. It's, he's one sense he's saying, your words display your evilness, your uncleanness. But also, it's a double meaning. It shows that you're full of death. You have life in you, but you're keeping all that life for yourself because you're living a world and a life that's all about you. It's not loving God and others. You're loving yourself. That's evil. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, he quotes this exact verse in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, he's building this argument, and it culminates in this biblical argument of how we are all evil. None of us are righteous. He says, none are righteous. No, not one. And then he says, your words show it. How is that? Your words reveal your heart. And in your heart, when you speak these things, it shows your heart and your words show that you're evil because your words are all about yourself. And then what Paul goes on to say is, we all deserve wrath. That really then puts a place to the imprecatory words in our Psalm 5. Look at verse 10. Make them to bear their guilt. Let them fall by their counsel, by their lies. What's the ultimate reason for the wrath? They've rebelled against God. This is Genesis 3 all over. They do not want God's presence. It's all about them. Now, you might be saying, okay, you've taken a long time, Pastor, to show how not to enter God's presence. How do we enter God's presence? How do evil people enter God's presence? It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that's a bold claim. How does Jesus demonstrate that? In Matthew chapter 27, there the apostle gives the account of that when Jesus was dying upon the cross, in the temple of God, it says, the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, it it was torn from top to bottom. This curtain is the curtain that separated God's holiness from sinful man. And when Jesus died upon the cross, it says it tore from top to bottom, not by natural wear, wasn't fraying at the bottom. It tore from top to bottom. God supernaturally tore this curtain. And what does that mean? What it means is that when Jesus was dying upon the cross, there is now access to the holy God. How did he do that? Our sin, our evil, 
that keeps us from God's presence because we cannot dwell with a holy God. Jesus, he who is holy, took that evil and sin upon himself. That is the gospel. See, when Jesus was dying upon the cross, he's not only forgiving us all of our sin, he's making us acceptable. He is giving us a new identity. He is making us a new creation. We're no longer seen as evil. Our sin is removed, and now we have free access to God. Now, someone might say, okay, I get that, but I still sin. In Romans chapter 7, verse 21, the apostle Paul says, there's a law. He doesn't say it's like an axiom or this general truth. He says, there's a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I still sin. But then he continues and he gives incredible hope. For at the end of chapter 7, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is that door. Jesus is that way. He is that life. See, yes, we still wrestle with sin and we will wrestle with sin until we die or until Jesus comes again. What the Bible is so clear to say is when you have faith in Christ, when you have your identity in Christ, you're a new creation. You are born again. You have a new nature. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, the old is gone and the new has come. You are no longer evil, but holy in Christ. Now, where do we see all this then in Psalm 5? Look at verse 7. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter the house of God. That word for steadfast love in the Hebrew is this wonderful, almost magical word, hesed. And hesed is this word that means unfailing love, unmerited love. One way to translate it is it's God's love. Some go as far to say it's God's grace. What David is saying is, God, I come into your presence not by my merit, but by your merit and your merit alone. God, I come in there because of your grace. God, you are the one who makes it possible for me to come into your very presence. David knows his own sin. That's why he says, I have this godly fear when I bow down before you. His only hope is the grace of God. Friends, this is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is our only perfect, our only confident way of entering into God's holy presence. So what do we do with this? Our third point, enjoying God's presence. I like how the last stanza ends in Psalm 5. Look at verse 11. Those who take refuge in God, what are they to do? To rejoice. What that means is God's presence, it's not like what we call a meh moment. For those of you who are older, what's meh? It's what the young people say when they're indifferent, okay? So when we enter into God's presence, there's never indifference. It's always, I'm undone. And when Jesus makes that way into God's presence, what does Psalm 5 say? Look at the very end, sing for joy. Exalt in God. Now, admittedly, when we ask people to see that we're evil, that rubs us the wrong way. I mean, how do you respond to that? 
hey, cheer up, you're far worse than you can ever imagine. <laughs> Yet it leads to profound joy. Cheer up, you're far more loved than you can ever imagine. See, we lose the joy of the gospel because we forget how the gospel saves and changes evil people like me and like you. In Luke chapter seven, Luke gives an account of an awkward dinner party. Jesus is at a Pharisee and his name is Simon and they sit down for dinner and the account goes is that there is a woman who comes in and she crashes the dinner party and she comes in and she finds Jesus and she begins to cry and she wets Jesus's feet with her tears and she wipes his feet with her hair. And Simon, with indignation, he says, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman she is, for there's a very careful description of the woman. She is, quote, a woman of the city. That is a polite way of saying she's a prostitute. And Simon, the Pharisee, is saying, how could you ever let her touch you? And so then Jesus gives a parable and the parable goes like this. There was a banker and the banker had some guys who owed him money. One guy owed him two years worth of money. That's a lot. And another guy owed him two months of money. And the banker out of grace and kindness and mercy says, I'm gonna forgive what you owe to me. And so then he asks Simon a question. Hey, which one of those guys whose debt was forgiven is gonna love the banker more? Well, it's, it's a really obvious answer. The one who owed him more. And then you get that very famous statement. Those who love little, or those, sorry, who've been forgiven little, they love little. Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. <laughs> How does this work with Psalm 5? I think it's easy in a self-righteous way to read Psalm 5. God, thank you that you come to get the bad guys, and thank you that I get to go into your presence. What Psalm 5, though, is really doing is, is it presses us to say, we too are the wicked. It's amazing that I get to come into your presence at all. It's all because of grace. Jesus, you are my refuge. Jesus, you are the one who puts amazing into amazing grace. You are the one who makes the good news good. <laughs> and so, I have been forgiven much, and so I am going to love much. And so Jesus, you take all my evil through your blood shed upon the cross. I am now new, I am forgiven, I am loved, and so I'm going to rejoice. Friends, is that your experience? Yes, we are evil, but you are far more loved than you can ever imagine. That is the gospel. What do we do about these bad guys in this psalm? Quite simply, we cannot stand that anyone would refuse God's glory. We cannot stand that anyone would spurn the salvation that is found in God. And so verse 10, God turned them over to see their ways. Basically, God lead them to repentance. Go back, look at verse eight. This is another way to pray. God, lead me in righteousness. Make my way straight. What he's saying is it's a twofold prayer. God, may I not follow or imitate evil. May it never cling to me. 
preserve me, keep me from this. But then also the prayer is, God, may the evil see my path. Would you use me as instruction of grace? May they learn about the God who makes a way through the Son, Jesus Christ. As Pastor Clay said, I'm gonna be gone the month of July. And I just wanna say I'm so grateful. Our family is very grateful that you're giving us this time away to be refreshed. During this time, I'm gonna have some writing projects for clarity. I am not writing a book. Some of you have been asking, what are you gonna write? Um, I'm really just organizing some thoughts that I've been having, um, and I'm gonna organize them around three topics. One is Hannah. Uh, Debbie and I have been wanting to just kind of write down some things that I think only we've learned because of Hannah. And so we want to be able to put some words to that. Uh, another thing that's a bit more church-related is um, everywhere where we've served, we've found there are kids who leave the faith. And there's a lot that's going on and you know, like young people deconstructing their faith. I just want to understand better why young people are deconstructing their faith, but also want to try to figure out, well, how as parents do we respond? What do we do when our kids leave the faith? That's one I'm going to be working on. Another one actually relates to this sermon in Psalm 5 is the depth of sin. What would happen if we truly knew how fallen we are? I, I, I don't even want to know how fallen I am. So I'm going to be writing on those things. Uh, another thing, though, that's going to happen during this time away is this practice of the presence of God. As David says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, this hesed, I will enter your house and bow down in fear of you. During this time away, I want to sing for joy because we take refuge in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So as I end, I'm just going to ask, would you pray for us? Pray for our daughter, Hannah. She's not well. So that kind of affects some of the plans, what we really want to do. So pray that she would be healthy. But then also pray that Jesus would make, us no, make himself known, that we would enter into his presence, and that we would be refreshed by his grace. Jesus provides the way to God. Would you enter his presence confidently? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the one who has taken my evil, our evil, upon yourself. You became sin for us. It is a mystery how you who are holy could become evil for us, but that's what you did upon the cross. Jesus, you are now our confidence to enter into God's presence, never on our own, because we are sinful. We are evil. Our words show it. But you, Lord Jesus, you are our righteousness, our holiness, and our acceptance. That is why you are the way, the truth, and the life. Eternal praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.